Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In our fourth year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Welcome back to Strength to Be Human. I'm your host, Mark Antonarasi, poet and playwright. Yes, we have another interview over here. As you know, it's always an exciting and blessed moment because it's not the easiest thing. I, I know we're so-called post-COVID, but, you know, people still have lives. We're still dealing with holidays and all kinds of things that people are having to tackle. Uh, I, I just talked to somebody recently. They spent half a day having returned gifts. <laughs> so you got people doing things, you know, you only can fit in so much stuff. So I understand. So we got a wonderful guest here, uh, Bruno Resigna. God, I hope I'm saying his name right. All right. This gentleman is not only a poet and a, and a fiction writer, but also a playwright, which is always wonderful to, to get the chance to, to talk to someone because, you know, I'm a playwright and I don't get as many on as I'd like to. I don't know why, but I've invited plenty and some of them are this shy. I don't know. Maybe it's easy for them to put the voice into other people rather than their own voice, and that's fine. But you know, I'm I'm glad to have one as well. He's uh he's been published in Leeson Fields uh, Quarterly, uh, Brooks County Writer, um, Tidewater, literally a yard. So I really appreciate Bruno coming on 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 the show over here. I invited him not too long ago, and we were able to make this happen quicker than normal. So that makes it an, an extra blessing. Bruno, thank you very much for being on. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Yeah, it's it's always wonderful to be able to speak with writers that bring something, if not new to the table, at, at least something new that we haven't heard about before. And, and that's that's really what I, I like to be able to hear as much as possible is people's their experiences, you know, where they're coming from. Everybody has a different one, and that's why it's great to be able to hear that. It's it's almost like the the show over the years is, is like a, a collection uh, of all these different uh, voices in, in the literary world. So this way, none of us can ever be mistaken or none of us can ever, maybe through insecurity or, or whatever, just think that, you know, there's only one one out there and, and therefore I can't write because this person already covered it. No, there's, there's plenty out there. Absolutely. Uh, so you were mentioning when we were talking before the show started uh, that you had a different take on this, and I was hoping you would want to elaborate more about that. Not everybody sure. starts off writing 20, 30, 40 years ago. Sometimes people find it years later in the middle of a career or during a crisis or a divorce or something like that. I've had people find it all over the place. And from there, they were able to, to bring it over to areas that made sense to them, and therefore they were able to stay committed and, you know, and become passionate. So what's your story about writing? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, – and that's really what I wanted to discuss with folks. But we're going to talk about writing, but this could apply to any any goal that somebody has, any dream that somebody has. Uh, I started out – I, w I was uh, working for Merrill Lynch, and I had transferred from one place to another. And I read a book, Writing Down the Bones by Natalie Goldberg. It's uh, been around a long, long time. 
and it's a classic. And this opened me up. Uh, I grew up in Brooklyn, a working class kid. I didn't know anything about writing. I didn't know anything about literature, poetry. The poetry we had in school, you know, it was uh, English writers from the 1800s or something. They spoke of, of a form of English that, I mean, if you're from Brooklyn, people tell you you don't speak English anyway. And mm -hmm. I'm reading stuff that I know, you know, they said it's English, but sure as hell isn't what I'm writing. I'm speaking. So I never had any interest in it. Somewhere like in the really early stages of, of uh, grammar school, I wrote a poem and I enjoyed it. And I, I kind of put it away in my head, but it, the experience of it never really went away. And I describe it as kind of a pebble in the shoe. It was always there. I always thought about you know, writing and it would come up like, yeah, maybe I should write something and then it would disappear. Uh, where I came from, we didn't know any writers. And in, God forbid if I had ever said to somebody, I'd like to be a writer, the abuse I would have gotten for that would have been you know, it would have gone on forever. So it, periodically it would come back and we go away. And as I say, I, I'm traveling, I'm working for Merrill Lynch and I'm traveling. And I have this book, a book that I don't remember buying, but it's in my, it's on my bookshelf. I'm reading it and there's a Zen saying that when the student is ready, the teacher arrives. And maybe I was ready because this book just opened me up. And I started, I started writing. And if you had asked me years ago, how does a Hemingway write? I would have assumed, well, he just sits down and writes. There's no real effort for him. It comes to him. I didn't understand how you labor over everything. Uh, so I start writing, and I'm starting with very small short stories that may or may not make sense. I'm just doing what the exercises are telling me to do. And I tell you, that's what I've done the whole time. I've been doing it now for, my gosh, I guess it's it's 40 years, off, pretty much uh, regularly, but some periods of, of I guess, of, of moving away from it because life got in the way in some way. Um, and my wife is a uh, retired English teacher, so it's a wonderful person to have at home and she's my first responder. I give her everything first. And I'd start giving her these short stories and she would comment on them, good, bad or indifferent. And I just kept doing it. I, I had a notebook. I wrote in the notebook. I didn't discuss it with anyone. And over time, the stories got longer, a little more involved, a little more um, complex. Um, I started submitting them places, uh, and I had a couple couple of uh, pieces published uh, back in I guess it was the 90s. And I really like theater. I really like drama, and I started looking at that as maybe something that I'd like to do. I met Merrill Merrill Lynch and. I'm pretty unhappy. I'm a manager and I'm making good money, but I'm really I'm really unhappy. And I decided I had enough money saved. I said I'm going to I'm going to step away from this.
and I'm going to spend time writing. But before I did this, I contacted Natalie Goldberg, the author of this book that I told you about, and I sent her some of my work. And she was very nice. She she responded and said um, some things about it and said, you know, I'm, I'm running a seminar in, in Taos, New Mexico. Well, it was about six months later. You ought to come to that thing. And I did. Um, and it was like about 18 women and me and, and, and some other guy. And I fell in love with Natalie, I fell in love with writing. I fell in love with Taos, New Mexico. Uh, it was just one of those experiences that just, uh, just a very, very uh, uh, life-changing. Uh, somebody said, "Follow your bliss." What was it Joseph um, Campbell said, "Follow your bliss," and the world somehow cooperates with you. And I think this was one of those moments. So I. I go to the seminar, the workshop. It's about a four-day thing, and I, I just have a great time. And I realize through Natalie and, and other people that I met, New Mexico has a very strong writing community. We were living at the time in, in South Florida, and um, I start talking to my wife about maybe moving to New Mexico for a few years, give this a shot. And that's what we we ultimately did. Uh, I stay I stayed with Merrill Lynch as a, a stockbroker, but I um, I you know started started really looking for ways of of communicate of connecting with writers. Um, somebody I knew knew the head of the playwriting department at University of New Mexico. So I go there. My first course. I take with uh, Isaac Chacron, who was then considered the uh, national playwright of Venezuela. And I learned some things from him. And I, I got to meet other people, of course, other writers. The next guy comes in is Digby Wolf, who was – you all know Digby Wolf, he was, uh, but you don't, know, you don't know him personally. He was one of the creators of Laugh-In back in the 60s, and a creative genius. He had done everything from British uh, musical hall comedies to television and plays and movies. Uh, and he was a wonderful, wonderful teacher and a lovely human being. He's passed away, unfortunately, a few years ago. And while we weren't like best of friends or anything, he was very helpful to me and, and, and my my work. Um, through his encouragement and the class that I was in, I had a couple of plays put on at the university, a couple of one-act plays put on, and uh, they went over well, the first one especially well. And that was an experience I, I mean, I can't explain to to be in the audit, to be in the back of the room, and this is a, a theater. This holds maybe a hundred people. It was the experimental theater at UNM, as a matter of fact. And to hear your words being said aloud by by these were uh, student actors, and s several of the faculty volunteered also. So I had some 
well-trained people. And to see this world that you've created come to life and hear your words come to life. Uh, it's amazing to me that these were words I had – I could have said from memory at the time, and yet it was like hearing them for the first time. Um, and it was wonderful. It was just the most wonderful experience to hear people laughing, and then all of a sudden you know a line's coming that's going to stop them cold, and boom, they stop. And then you know, and you just like you're moving people emotionally. And it was just it was a wonderful experience. And I did that. I, I guess I then eventually left Merrill Lynch and just wrote for about oh about three four years. Wrote another play, uh, and just kept working at this. And. You know, you write – I was writing comedy sketches. We did – I had comedy sketches on uh, the local PBS station, uh, radio station. Uh, they did something for Disney, and I had contributions. I had sketches in that. Um, I had one sketch on uh, PBS in, in Lawrence, Kansas, um, and, and, and a ton of a ton of no thank yous, a ton of, you know, doesn't work for us, that type of thing. And you just keep going. Um, not unlike a salesman who gets rejected trying to sell whatever he's got, you get the same experience with your material. People say no thank you for a lot of reasons. Some of them because the piece doesn't fit them, it doesn't, it's, it's not appropriate for them, it's not up to their standards, it's beyond their standards. You never know. You just keep doing it. And Digby had this wonderful uh, 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 lecture one day talking about all the reasons that it's not going to work for you, that writing is not going to be your way of life. And he listed about 10 or 15 things that said, you know, the editor is going to screw it up. The publisher is not going to want it. The director of the play is, is going to uh, screw it up. The actors are going to call it shit. The, and it was just – he had this litany of things that said why this is not going to work. And and his, his final two were – and you're going to get frustrated and fed up, and you say, the hell with it. I'm, I quit, and no one's going to care. So it was like it – was, it was so wonderful to – in this negative kind of approach, it was in a way arming everyone. Hey, if you go after this, this is no bed of roses. This is no uh, don't don't hollow uh, don't idealize this thing that somebody's just going to find you and all of a sudden you're in Hollywood because that doesn't happen that way. You get a, you get a lot of you know a lot of crumbled paper back and saying no, thank you. I took about eleven courses with Digby. One of which was a play uh, was a, a screenplay writing class. They did a, a stage reading of my uh, of my screenplay. Digby liked it. It went well. He gave it to somebody. It went to Hollywood and came back. Um, and you know that's the way it goes. But it was still that 
that experience. And he said something at the, the, the night of my reading. He said, everybody wants to be a writer, but nobody wants to write. And there's great truth to that. I've been in a number of writing classes and a number of writing groups where people like the idea of being a writer. I think they, they see themselves smoking a pipe and wearing a beret or something, but they don't actually want to do the, the grunt work, the, you know, the pick and shovel stuff. And he said to me, and that, that year I had written seven screenplays none of which have ever left <laughs> University of New Mexico and right now are sitting on some garbage pile somewhere. But I did them because that's what you got to do. You've got to sit there and you keep writing. And you think of all the negative things that are going to happen to you and you keep writing. And then this guy has it, and this guy doesn't like, well, and you keep writing. And it's just like this. It goes on and on and on. And, but it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience for me. Uh, I, found, I found you through a workshop I took, Ella P uh, Perry. And I took the class on poetry. She does one of the things that you got from the uh, from the workshop is she would edit six of your pieces. She did that, and she also would give you names of uh, places to send them that she thought the pieces might fit. And one of them was your your website. And I meet you, and now I'm doing this. So who knows? You know, I mean, it's just I can give you a hundred stories of that of stuff that I did that never went anywhere, and yet there are moments like this that I guess keep you going. Yeah, you you don't no. know you don't know what's going to happen, and it's difficult. I, I find that that's what I, I did a show on last night where we talked about that a bit, but it's difficult to no matter how good a writer you are how expressive you are as a person to relay the things that can happen if you're willing to be passionate and, and persistent because we live in such a society right now that everything has to be black and white. It has to have a beginning, middle, and an end. You know, if we can't really evaluate the success if we haven't done this, that, and whatever, there's, there's no chance for the mystery. There's no... There's no theory about what could happen. It's just like, uh, I'll do it for a year, and if it don't work, the heck with it. Yeah, so yeah. when you have that kind of attitude, you're, you're never going to be anything as a writer. You might as well just go back. You might as well be an architect or an engineer that's or you know a physician's assistant or something because if that's the finite existence you want, and, and I'm not mocking it, don't get me wrong, uh, then maybe that's better for you and in your frame of mind because – for the people who do this, they're they're the thick-skinned people that handle rejection. They're the people that continue to believe when everything around them says don't believe, and you just never know what's going to happen. You never know who's going to recommend you. Uh, I can tell you a brief story. I haven't really mentioned this much on the show before, but I come out of the Air Force and this is in the early 1990s, and. Uh, 
I was already doing writing, but uh, I started uh, entering into playwriting. And so I, I, I meet this fellow. And this is before the internet and computer stuff and everything. Everything has to be regular mail. So I meet yeah. I meet this guy off Broadway, and he's like, you know, I, I really like this play. He goes, but um, we're not really sure about how the casting is going to go. And I'm like, maybe we should talk on the phone about this, because I'm reading his letter, and I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Right? <laughs> but I'm happy that he's talking to me, because he's a... He's a he's a director of the Harold Clerman Theater back when when it was a Harold Clerman Theater. This is off Broadway, and we talk on the phone. He's like, you know, you don't really sound black. I'm like, well, I'm not. Uh, but the whole play is about black characters, and uh, I'm 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 of that generation. I don't believe I need to be one thing or another if I want to write about something. As long as I'm being accurate and, and respectful, it shouldn't be a problem. He goes, it's not. I was just expecting a black guy. I'm like, okay. I go, so what's the problem? He goes, well, here's the problem. Everybody in your play is black. And because that's everybody in your play is black, these are the very same people that they're willing to work for scale, off-Broadway, Broadway, or wherever, but with the understanding that the moment someone calls from the agency to do a commercial, they're literally going to leave you flat, and that's the end of the story because the money involved in doing just one commercial could support an actor for an entire year. And he goes, and they got to think about the rent and food, too. So, of course, these are things I never thought about at the time. I'm like, okay, right. I understand, and I'll, 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 we'll all take the chance at what we do. So I go from just getting out of the Air Force. I mean, I've been in Germany all over the world. And I write, I write this play. I wrote a number of plays, but this one got picked up. And the next thing you know, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the grandfather uh, who played the the actor who played the grandfather in the Cosby Show? He's the he's the pastor oh. or the preacher in my sh in my my play, and I go and he's like, don't worry about me running off to do a commercial. No one cares about an old black guy doing a commercial. But these other guys, you could be in trouble. He goes and I don't need the money. I just like to work. I'm like, oh, and I live in New York. So I'm like, okay, great. So everybody's telling me the whole life story about this, and I'm just like sitting here going. Can anyone talk about my play? And I'm saying that mentally, though, because they're telling me about life and money and all this other strange stuff. But that's how things could happen. You just don't know. The next thing you know, you're speaking to people that you're just watching on TV last week. And next thing you know, you're talking to them in person, you know? Yes. And, uh, and the director was hilarious. He goes, I hope you don't mind the devil being gay. I go, well, I got the devil being black. So at this point, I don't think it's really going to matter to the audience. They get, they get that it's the devil. So let's, let's go with that. So my my devil is black and gay. I'm like, all right, that that kind of works actually, because he's really slick in it too. And uh, I, I had the same feeling you did. I didn't expect to have that feeling. That as I sat there, at the time I brought my girlfriend with me too. We came over from New Jersey, took the train and went over there. Uh, that uh, it was it was a shocking to see people do the do the play, hear your words, and and all of that, because yeah. you visualize it and you try to hear it, but it's not the same as when someone else is, is saying it. Right. I was fortunate we had a three-week run and nobody got called. I, I, I mean, fortunate for me, obviously, they'd probably love to be yeah. called for a commercial <laughs> versus doing my play, you know? And, and I had to still deal with some of the jokes, you know, because I'm like, we thought you were going to be black. I'm like, I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, if you want to call August Wilson, be my guest, and he'll explain, <laughs> he'll explain to you that even in black playwriting history, the moment they get a chance to do a screenplay and it gets picked up, they're not doing plays anymore. People are trying to make the rent. I mean, <laughs> I, I almost picked that lineup from everybody else because I'm hanging out with these Broadway people. They're just 
they were like brainwashing me into this, but that was the, that was the truth for it all. I go, it's not my fault. There's not a lot of black playwrights, okay? But I'm not trying to make a point other than, you know, I thought it was a, a good way to express some of the ideas I had, and um, it wasn't funny enough. And I think that's why the uh, the director liked it so much, is because even though it was a, a play with black characters, it wasn't a play about about racism or anything. It was just normal mm. normal people. You know, dealing with uh, a more of a religious angle, they just happen to all be black, mm-hmm. and that that really worked out. But uh, you know, I, I like what you had to say about that because I, I remember that that very first time. Uh, you know, one of the things that you brought up, you reminded me of it, is the thing about why are you, why do you want to write? And this, I have to tell you, this is I think the biggest. The thing that probably catches most people, and I say, why are you doing this? If you're doing this because you're kind of in love with being a writer or you idealize some sort of life like that, uh, as, as Digby said, you know, everybody wants to be a writer. No one wants to write. Then you're in the wrong ballpark because this isn't going to get you there. You can't – you've got to do this because you can't seem to help doing it. You just – this stuff just doesn't it's it keeps yelling at you to do it and you've got to sit down and write it if you don't have that sense of that uh, my guess is it's probably not for you one of the things it's funny when i i started when people start talking to me about my writing and things how often they they talk about and this was early on uh, they'd say well, you know, have you been published or are you going to be published? I said, I don't know. I'd like to be, but I don't know. But no one says, you know, if I said I took up golf, no one says, are you going to turn pro? You know, you're playing softball. You're going to try to get into the professional softball leagues. But right away, as soon as you say you're writing, are you got, did you get published? You don't have to get published. You have to write because you have to write because something's inside of you is – is annoying you, is saying, would you put this down on paper? This is important. Write write this. That's why you're writing. If you're writing because you want to smoke a pipe and you know and, and be a screenwriter or a playwright some I don't think I don't think that's the motivation. It's it's not. Uh, a big part of the show I did last night, and I hope you get a chance to, to listen to it amongst other folks. Already got a bunch of people doing so, and I'm, I'm definitely grateful. I got a few emails back already. Is um, you, I, 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 I hate to sound mis- overly mysterious about it, though, but the truth of the matter is, is that you'll know the person is a writer when they can't give you a straight answer because there really isn't a straight answer. Even even if you tried to give one, you, you sound like a lunatic. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I write because I hear a voice. People like, yes. uh, hey, okay, take yes. care. I'm, I'm going to go now. Bye. Because they figure you're mentally <laughs> yeah. ill, you know? Or, uh, or, or like, I write because something's calling me. Like, oh, my God, he's a yes. Jehovah Witness. I mean, they just, they people just, they lose their mind thinking you've lost your mind, you know? So um, I think, I think, I think one of the best answers, if it's an answer at all, because I'm not really sure if it's answerable, is what you had to say. Uh, I, I'm doing this because um, I feel like I'm compelled to to to, to get my voice out there. That's usually how yes. I put it. 
it's the only way I can think of. And I swear to God, people still scratching their heads. Like, what? Yes. I'm like, yeah. listen, I'm not trying to be yeah. slick here, but I, I could give you all these technical reasons and you're not going to understand or care or you think I'm crazy. Or, or you'll walk away and tell everybody you know, underneath your breath, he must be on drugs. He must be, uh, he must be an alcoholic. He must be three times divorced. He must beat his kids. It's always some, it's always some crazy stereotype they learn from, yeah. you know, a cable show or something. So it's a, it's a hard thing to explain to people, which is ironic because part of our job is to, to find things. Communicate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to be a but communicator, a, but I can't communicate to you why I want to communicate. I can't, I can't explain this. That's right. Yeah. But I. I mean, I, I've had characters in my head sometimes just like it was like they're just uh, bothering me. It was like, come on, come on, come on. I've had my wife yell at me because we're sitting having dinner and all of a sudden she sees my my head look up in the sky because a, a story is coming or a, a dialogue is coming. And she was, where'd you go? And it's embarrassing in a way. You know, it was like. I'm sorry. I just left. I was, you know, I was on a plane <laughs> with this fellow, uh, and it just—I don't know why that happens. And Digby was Digby used to always say, "Don't don't dig too deep into this about creativity and and just do it." And there's something to that. Don't intellectualize this stuff. You'll ruin it. Yeah, uh, I, and I agree with that. It's just that. People, they, they, they have a, a valid, you know, inquiry, you know, why are you doing this or what's it all about or yeah. what, what are you getting from it or, you know, have you made yeah. any money today? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, um, that's right. I don't really think those are invalid questions. I mean, I think they're annoying questions, but there's, <laughs> there's still questions that we are called upon to ask and oftentimes we can't give a suitable answer. And we live in a culture that measures worth by how much money you've got and how much you're getting paid to do it. So it's, it's a logical question given our, our, our world. And when you tell them, no, I'm, you know, I don't get paid for this. I just do it. And there's always kind of, Oh, okay. Well, well, you know, I, I used to play tennis with my wife. I never got paid for that either. And I did it. <laughs> uh, you know, I go bowling. Nobody's believe me. Nobody's giving me money to go bowling. And, uh, I, you know, you just do it because you do it, and it, it's something that some part of you says I, it needs to be done, and so you do it. Yeah, uh, I, I mentioned but, that in the show uh, that I did just last night. Uh, I mentioned that uh, that I, I'm certainly not uh, afraid to talk about it, and I'm certainly not ashamed. It's not a big secret, but I've learned over the years it, it's better not to bring it up at all because it's just a whole less nonsense that I have to deal with. <laughs> Why? Why deal with that? You know. Yeah, yeah. really. But um, I was in the Air Force too. It's nice to talk to someone else who's been in. Oh, great! Um, I didn't know that. That's that's good to hear. Yeah. I, I, I didn't yeah, see it on the bio, and the, that's great. Yeah, late sixties. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're a little older than me, probably. Oh, a lot older than you, I'm sure. But <laughs> I was in the, uh, I was in the eighties, but still. <laughs> yeah, uh, I was in. You know, I used to tell people. You know, I was in right after the Civil War. You know, I, I joined, but uh, there was no Air Force then. That that didn't start until '47. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I was in uh, back in the late '60s. Never went anywhere. I was an enlisted guy, just a clerk. But 
it was a good experience and it got me away from Brooklyn. It got me to meet people different than the people I knew because I hadn't, I hadn't been anywhere up to that point in my life. So it's, it was, they got more out of me than I'm sure than I ever got than they got. I, I got more out of them than they ever got out of me. Um, and I, I'm delighted that I that I did it. All right. Well, that's, that's great. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you for your service. Yeah. I, I mentioned it only because I, I've been fortunate when I was in the service that I got to go to school and, and graduate and got to travel around the world and, and, and got to continue to do writing. So I was able to get yeah. a lot of the things that you would dream about wanting to do. The Air Force allowed right. me to do that. I just didn't choose I, to want to stay. I just did my six years and, and went about my business. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, I was very happy that I did it. Yeah. I uh, I don't think I would have gone to college without it because I really didn't think I was college material. I had no idea. Nobody I knew was in college. And when I when I went, I met I wasn't I was enlisted. I went I went in at after high school, and I met you know I met very bright people and people who I could keep up with and who uh, seemed to you know uh, appreciate what I had to contribute. And I was encouraged to go to college by those people, and I think that would that helped give me that sense of confidence that you know maybe I could do this. So. As I say, uh, I got far more out of the out of the government than they got out of me, and you know, uh, I wouldn't have brought it up either. Truthfully, had you not said Air Force, I just was pleased to hear another Air Force uh, person. Yeah, uh, I don't get to meet too many of them, and uh, or even <laughs> veterans at all that are that are doing anything creative. So it's always it's always when, wonderful to hear. When I uh, after when I I, I was. Um, when I left Merrill Lynch and I went to, uh, I wrote for a few years and, you know, it, Digby said to me, he said, no, you've got another five years to go before you're ready uh, to do something. He was talking about uh, screenwriting and playwriting. And I didn't have, I didn't have enough money and, you know, w- w- uh, it was time to go back to work. And I took a series of jobs and, Eventually, I got to the point where I was in my early 50s, and I said, you know, this is, I'm not happy. I'm not happy doing this, but I've got to work. And I said, what, is, what are the things that really mattered to me? And one of the things was psychology. I had always had a strong interest in it. Uh, it helped me in my own therapy. And I thought, how can I do this? And I eventually – make a long story short on this part – uh, I went back and got a second master's in social work, and I became a clinical social worker and psychotherapist with the Veterans Administration. And I got to counsel combat veterans from literally from the from World War II right to uh, Iraq. Uh, but mostly, most of my clients were um, Vietnam vets. And it was a wonderful experience. It was the, the greatest job I'd ever had. Uh, I cried my last day there. Uh, I, did, I mean, I, it was, I was uh, past retirement age for me, and it was getting hard to sit and keep focused for you know six, seven sessions. And I felt it was time for me to 
to retire. But truthfully, uh, it was – I never felt I worked a day in my life. I went in. I sat with these people. Again, guys that were very similar to the people I grew up with. They were just working-class kids. Nobody had any particularly – well, a few had uh, college education. Most of them weren't college educated. Uh they all were suffering with post-traumatic stress disorder, among other things. Mm-hmm. And it was the greatest experience of my life. And I, I, I'm sure some of their stories will leak out in things I do over the next few years. I've written a few poems about it. But uh, but it was really a wonderful experience. And I bring this up for several reasons, one of which is this was something – when I was in business, I could do the job because I'm intelligent enough and creative enough to at least be average. But there was, wasn't much me in it. There wasn't a lot of that my heart in it. But when I found writing and then working as a therapist, I was totally in it. And the difference – I wish I – Somebody could have directed me early on in life. You know, you're raised by people who didn't go to school, didn't go to, had no education. Were, you know, basically good people, and but they just worked. That's all they knew, and so they they couldn't really give you uh, guidance in this regard. What I heard more than anything when I was a kid was get a government job because there's a good pension. Well, telling that to a kid is like the most worthless thing in the world. What does a kid care about pensions? Uh, but finding that place in life, really, it really made me see where I belonged. And it gave me tremendous confidence. And I think that confidence helped my writing also. Yeah, it makes, it makes sense. It really does. Because one of the issues that people have and I don't mean just starting out as writing. I mean, just they could be doing it for 10 years. It is a confidence issue. It happens a lot. Yeah. It, it, it's yes. for writing people. It doesn't mean that one day you gain it and now you keep it for the next 35 years or something. It doesn't really work that way. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, it's like uh, going through a series of girlfriends. You're going to grab a couple and you're going to lose a couple. And it's just a continual path. <laughs> You know, it's the same thing with confidence. You're gonna you're gonna gain it, you're gonna lose it, and you gotta go gain it again. And yes. um, a lot of people don't realize that. They just think, uh, yes. Well, what happened yesterday when you were so into it and you were so focused? Well, uh, that was yesterday. <laughs> yes. That was Tuesday. Today One is Wednesday. Fe- you know. <laughs> one of my fears always after I get done writing a project is is that the last one? You know, have I finished? As, you know, because the mind, the mind wants to do things logically and linear, in, in a linear fashion, so it assumes there's beginnings and endings, and there's a quantitative, uh, there's a number uh, in your, you know, of stories that you have to tell. You have now finished. It's not that's not reality. That's just the mind's way of of uh, quantifying everything that it deals with. But I, I, I've had that that experience many, many times. Like, oh God, is this it? I got nothing left. Uh, but there's invariably, and I'm always my, my wife, bless her heart, always says, no, don't worry, there'll be more. And sure enough, you know, some number of days later, hi, I got a new idea, and I, I go running off with that. But uh, it's 
that's another part of uh, of, of the writing part, uh, the writing why it makes writing so so unique is that you're dealing with your mind and your mind is telling you all sorts of things that have no relationship to your reality it's it's over editing everything you're doing. It's telling you you can't do it. It's taking any rejection and saying, you see, this really isn't for you. You've got to overcome that. You've got to just say, thank you. I appreciate your help, but I'm going to continue. And, you know, yes, there is another story to tell. I just don't have it right now. I'm, you know, the, uh, we've had, we've just had a harvest and now we've got to wait until the, you know, until the season begins again. Uh, but there, you're forever fighting yourself. If you allow your mind to take over, you're forever having to to try to to win that battle with yourself to continue doing it. And you know you're going to continue doing it because you're going to the voices are going to start again with the why don't you write about this and you know where's that that character is so perfect why don't you put him in that situation and all the noise that <laughs> we hear uh people you know might might equate writing with psych psychosis but the reality is it just this is what happens you characters show up storylines show up and you, you know it, it it motivates you to get going before you know it you're starting to play around with it and write some things down, and and it just you're slowly gathering characters and and, and situations and and where you want to take it. Um, it's a lovely process. It really is. One of the things that I encourage everyone to do if they're thinking about doing this is get a get a notebook. I mean, the, the the commitment to this financially is pretty low at the beginning. You got to get a pen or a pencil and a notebook. So let's say you're out a couple of bucks, and just start with journaling. Don't worry about writing stories. Don't worry about writing a bestseller. Just start with journaling. Do a journal every day for 30 days. Fill a page. And Natalie says in her in her book, when when you get stuck, write the word stuck. Don't edit. Don't worry about if it's good or not. She says it right in the book. You're allowed to write shit. Write shit. No one's going to see it. Just keep writing. Make, let the hand keep going. Don't let the hand stop. Fill the page, and that's your job for today. Fill the page at one sitting, and then forget about it, and then do it again tomorrow. And then do it again the day after. And write about anything that comes up. And it doesn't have to be logical. It doesn't have to flow. It doesn't have to have beginning, middle, ending. Just whatever the mind throws out, just write about it. Just write it down. And do this for a month and see how that was. And go back and read it. And when you go back and read it, pull out lines that you like or phrases you like. Because that may motivate you to write something else. But that's a nice way of sticking your toe in the water just to see what that's like. And if you find it really tedious and something that you can't do after one day or two days, then maybe it's not time for you to do it. 
I would suggest no matter what your dream is, no matter whether it's writing, whether it's learning to ski, whether it's wanting to get a, a, a degree in something, start start looking for ways to incorporate it into your life. The first thing the mind is going to do is tell you all the reasons you can't do it. Well, you know, I don't have time. I got kids. My wife needs me. I've got the job takes a lot of my time. All the noise. Some of it is a hiding place. Some of it is a hiding place to avoid trying and avoid, God forbid, failing. Because that's really the, it's the fear of failure that comes up. What if it, you know, what if I'm not good at it? What if this dream I've had all my life, suppose I'm not good at it? Then, then what do I do? Or suppose I don't like it. Then what do I do? Don't worry about it. Something else will happen. It, it may be taking you to the next thing. But find something that you can start doing. Is there a class? Is there a Zoom class you can take so you don't have to go out to a school? Is there a group that meets that you could join? Is there a book you can read? Is there an exercise you can take? Something that incorporates that, that allows you to feed that dream a little bit and see where this takes you. This is where your emotions, in many respects, your emotions are far more important than your intellect. Because the dream isn't intellectual, the dream is emotional. What you want to do is coming from a different place and an honest place. As long as you're if, – if it's if – it's, if you're doing it because you want to make a lot of money, if you're doing it because you want the prestige, that's self-esteem issues, and that you can work out with a therapist. But if you want to do it because there's something beautiful in it, there's something that looks so appealing to you to do it, pursue it at least a little bit. See what it's like. You may start in that spot and it may move you to someplace else that you didn't even know about. The thing is you went through the door and that door is going to lead you to another door. But you can't do it just thinking about it. Nothing happens until you take action. So if I, if I say nothing today that matters to you but that, that's probably the most important thing because all we're doing, this is all intellectual. This is all verbal stuff. But at some point, you got to do it. And I can only speak for myself. Since I started doing this, I've been happier in my life, in all facets of my life. I'm no richer, God knows. I'm no more important. If anything, I'm far less important than I would have been in any other walk of life I chose. But I'm happier in this, and that translates to a happier marriage, a happier relationship with others. Uh, God knows it must be a healthier – it's got to be better on your heart and your physical health. So – Feed that part of you, and it's a, it's a way of honoring yourself because in a way you're saying, 
I'm important enough to try this. So if you're honoring you, and that, that's a wonderful thing. No one has to know you're doing it. Just, just do it. No one has to know you're reading that book or taking that class or doing that journal, taking the lessons. Just do it and see what it's like. What you might want to do is do it and then write and, and, and have a journal while you're doing it and write about how it feels. Well, I, I love the advice because I know from from personal experience and, and from listening to other people and, and some of the things I've gone through that it makes complete sense and it really is a practical way of going about things because – in essence, if you journal anything on a regular basis, really what you're doing is two things. You're getting some emotional release, which is important because you're still questioning whether this is something you want to do or not. And then also, believe it or not, even though you might not be proofreading and self-editing anything you're doing, it is a, it is a form of writing that you're starting to practice about how you want to organize your thoughts and what you want to say. Because later on, True. you might be able to use that as the source material, which a lot of people do. Absolutely. You're right. Um, it's it, – it, I mean, you, you, you know, you, you're going to live for some number of years. Why not enjoy it? Why not do what you want to do? Uh, Television gives you a, a, some fantasy. Your life may not be that, that world that you see on television. probably isn't. But you're in a world. So find the world that you want to be in. Well, I've known a lot of people, past and present, that they were unhappy people. And they wasn't unhappy people because they uh, were in a wrong relationship or even in a wrong job. Uh, they were often unhappy because they were full of regrets of things they never pursued. They never yes. got to answer whether it could have done something for them or not, or if they just could have kept it as a, you know, a private or some other kind of hobby. I, I can tell you a short story about a guy. I make it pretty short for you, but I knew a guy that. He was very unhappy. And I've known him for a long time. My first guess was, without really having a, a more intimate conversation about his unhappiness, was he was just stuck in a marriage he didn't want to be in. People are like that yes. all the time. You know? Yeah. My wife and I, we're, we're probably one of the few people we know that are still married as long as we are. Everybody we know uh, on both sides of our family, they're in second and third marriages, you know? So I figured he's on that on that road, you know, and um, eventually that broke down the marriage. And of course, I'm stereotypically thinking, yeah, it's, that was the course he was on. Uh, no, um, this guy was a trumpet player. Nobody knew. OK, oh. he never pursued it in any serious fashion. He did a little bit here, a little bit there, kept it very private. And, you know, went about the job he hated to do in a marriage that I don't even know if he was happy in. Um, and when he got divorced, he literally just packed up, took the trumpet, 
joined the band that he just literally tried out for, and he spent years on the road doing exactly what he probably should have been doing the last 25 years. Just in the last two years, he said he couldn't have been any happier doing exactly what he thought he should have done. But it took that long for him to finally come to realization that he was unhappy, not because his marriage was bad or any other thing was bad. He was just not doing what he should have been doing. And it always right. always plagued him. I guess it went from nagging to annoying to plaguing to where it literally put him into the depression. And you know, once he finally picked it up, so yeah, I, I think the mind, I think the mind says, "See, it's never going to get better. Our life is just always going to be like this." And that's a depressing thought if you're unhappy. That you know every day you're going to wake up and you're going to go to and spend eight hours not being you. You're going to come home and you know the, a big part of you is not going to be expressed in any way. That's a very difficult thing to to uh, to live with. I, I can imagine. Whole, I can imagine that it is. It's not hard to really understand when you're a when you're a writer and you deal with all these kind of things on a regular basis, or you hear other people. It's not hard yeah. to understand. It's one of the reasons why, as somebody who's who's a straight guy, learned to understand more about people he knew were in the closet and why either they mm. decided to come out or why they didn't come out, I, I had a better understanding of that. You'd have to be gay to understand that there were things holding people back and there were also things where you could see why they just decided, the hell with this, I need to come out because I'm never going to be fully happy until I do. And, um, very good. And I good, think it's good. it's the same. It's the same. It's really the same instance. Absolutely. Just because it's sexuality yes, versus art, it's really the same impulses involved. You're in some kind that's of emotional right. prison, and, and that sucks. Right. That's uh, somebody said, and I've used it for years. We build our own prisons, and that's a perfect example of it. And you use the word, uh, and that's a great a great. Uh, Example of it, somebody who is holding back their sexuality, holding back the real person for all the real, you know, all the logical reasons. I mean, we, we know what that's about, but it's still the, the sadness of that is that somebody is imprisoning themselves. They're, hold, they're in jail holding the key and they can't let themselves out. That's a, you know, a difficult thing. And I, truthfully, what we're talking about is a scary thing. You're talking about changing your life. You're changing. You're talking about trying, uh, going on a pathless path. There's no signs. There's no. There's no uh, way of doing. There's no no systematic way of doing this. You're walking. You're in the dark the whole time. You're just trying to find your way, and. You're risking a lot of things. So I understand the hesitancy. I had the hesitancy. Uh, you're, uh, there's a lot of risk involved. There's a risk to the ego. There's a financial risk. There's risk to losing friends. Uh, anytime you change anything, you run the risk of, of losing friends, losing people that you have the com- some commonality with. Talk to an alcoholic who, who sobers up. He loses all his drunk friends because the thing they had in common was their alcoholism. And now he's he's not wanted. 
because he's 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 seen as as proof that you can you can uh, be sober. So his drunk friends don't want anything to be part of him. So there's a, no matter what you, whenever you make a change, there is a risk inherent in that change. And and it's it's understandable why we're hesitant to do it. And in some cases, it can be a profound uh, change and a profound change in our lifestyle, in our the people who are, we're with. And it, it's really uh, it's you know as I say it's, it's really a frightening thing. But not to do it is is in a way to put yourself in a little bit of a hell. To say I, I, I'm going to live in, I'm going to live almost like a character. I'm going to live as a character who works in a bank and you know lives in the suburbs and has 2.3 children and all and but that's not really who I am. It's a character I'm playing. Unfortunately, there's only one performance, and so it runs for 50, 60, 70 years, and then it's over, and there's no there's no second act. Uh, so I don't know what choice we have but to be ourselves, and sometimes being ourselves is going to be scary. But maybe maybe it'll work out. Now that I've scared the hell out of you for you know <laughs> thirty minutes, maybe it'll work out. Maybe what you'll find is yeah, it's it's this doesn't work, this doesn't. But I'm for some reason I'm happier. I like doing this. Well, great. You're a success. You may not be a success uh, in terms of our culture's measurement of success, but you are absolutely a success. Uh, because you're being who you are. And as I say, if it's writing, great. If it's something else, that's great too. Uh, but we always talk about creativity and, and the arts. It could be somebody who works in a garden who decides he wants to be a florist or be a, a landscaper or something, a landscape architect or something. Who knows? Uh it doesn't have to be in the in the arts. It just has to be you. I I I couldn't agree more. Many of the things that I talk about on this show regarding uh, the literary life and writing uh, have numerous applications on 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 the general basis in life because we're still talking about the courage to step forward. We're still talking about the faith to maintain. You know, we're still talking about the strength to endure rejection and, and even coming from the closest people in your life. Those are things that you still have to deal with in, in other fields and other things that you're doing. Yes, they're, that's right. And not just for writers. That's right. I, I just I just think that the more you're you, the more confidence you you gain. And that translates into a lot of other relationships, and it, it translates, as you had mentioned before, about your, the gentleman you spoke about. It, it changes your relationship with people. It changes, it changes you, uh, and it's, it's life affirming. Oh, it is, because I remember seeing this guy after not seeing him for like, oh, like over two years, and when he told me all of this, before he even told me all of this. When he was coming up to me down on the street, 
I could already tell that something was different about him. He walked <sighs> he walked differently. His body language was something that was exciting and confident. He he smiled the way he never smiled before. His eyes lit up when he was telling me about all this stuff. I mean, he's like in some smoky uh, back room jazz joint in, in, in some town I never heard of before, and he's having the time of his life. So, I mean, but he's telling me something that's not just some, some story to make me feel good. He's telling me about something that he's just totally excited about doing didn't care yes. that he was in a flop house afterwards having a drink because he felt he was doing exactly what he's supposed to have been doing. And he said there was no feeling like that in the world. And I knew everything about the guy was transformed. He was just somebody else that had none been before. Thank God I'm a writer, so I was happy for him. But if I was somebody else, I'm like, who the hell is this guy? Because he's not the same guy I knew two <laughs> years ago. I knew that as, as a writer that what he was talking about made sense to me, and I was extremely happy for him. And I'm also happy for him, too, that as he along, went along with the path of what he was trying to do, he slowly tried to pick up some of the pieces of his of his, of his his life with his children. Even with his wife, who became his ex-wife, he still tried to reconnect and wanted to be friends again and try to give them an explanation and for them to sort of be part of it to where he can eventually invite them as he got to places closer to where they resided at. And he was trying to have it all, and, and it looked to me like he was going to be able to do that. But... At least he had uh, a, a real honest approach to it versus, again, living a fake existence, yes. which a lot of people live. And it's no wonder why so many people uh, are dealing with uh, depression and dysfunction and divorce is because they're not really living authentic lives. They're living some life that someone told them they're supposed to live, whether it was their boss right. at work or their family members. I remember my father, God rest his soul, a wonderful guy. He had the most ironic and, and, and humorous conversation with me one day. It's something that people have heard on a TV show they wouldn't believe. But he said, you know, I'm all for you going to college. It makes sense because you don't know how to fix anything. And, and you don't know how to, to deal with the world I'm dealing with. I'm like, I know, I know. I've been telling you that for 10 years now. You think I'm being a jerk over here? I'm telling you. I, I'm from Jersey. I'm, I'm an Italian guy. I'm from this neighborhood. But I don't care about cars, and I don't care about plumbing. I care about books, and I care about the girls. I want to travel, and I want to go to school, and this is the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to go in the Air Force, and I'm going to get all that done, which is what exactly what I did. Only one in my entire neighborhood that even went to college. Only one, because everybody else, family, just like my father, they work for the union. They work on the docks. You get your guard. You go, and you have a whole life of doing that type of work. You're gonna make a good you're gonna make a good income. Most of the time, they almost never went anywhere except for occasionally they went to Bermuda or they occasionally went to Florida or something. But literally, their entire life was like in that neighborhood doing those kind of jobs, and they'd be there 50, 60, 70 years, and you know, and that's all wonderful. I'm, I don't make fun of it. It's what brought me in there. You know, I'm one of those few writers that right. I can't give you any stories of poverty because I don't know what the hell that is. We had a pretty normal middle class life. You know, we wasn't rich, but we certainly yeah. wasn't poor. And um, yeah. but I didn't want any of that. I just didn't want it. It just wasn't for me. My brother, he he that was all. He was all for that. And God bless him. He's great. But it wasn't for me. It never clicked into me at all. I'm still one of those people that I don't even like driving. I drive, but I, only because I have to drive. I got to bring you to school, son. Let's go. 
but I don't want to drive. If I ever won the lottery or I got a big best-selling book, the first thing I do with my money is I would get a driver because I would never drive again. <laughs> That's come with how much I don't like it. I don't care about how to fix the car. I don't even care about driving the car. The car is just a stupid instrument to get me someplace. And if somebody else can get me someplace, that's great too. <laughs> so he's, he's the way he literally told me, yeah, I think you're the candidate for college, Mark, because you're not going to fit in this world. And I'm like, yeah, that, I came to that conclusion years ago, but I'm glad we're finally, like, you know, connecting here. <laughs> my, my father grew up in the Depression, and they looked at work very differently than – our generation, my generation did. Uh, they found the job and they held on to it because they had experienced not knowing where the next meal's coming from. Uh, and when you know, when I talked about leaving Merrill Lynch and and going off to write, I mean, I I triggered a lot of noise for this poor man and. It, you know, to his credit, he didn't like strangle me or anything. He just, <laughs> you know, it was like when I was a kid, I said I was going to drive a truck. He said, no, you don't want to do that. He said, that's hard work. And your body, when you're in your 40s and 50s, your body's not going to like it. And when you're a kid, you know, what, what do I know? So, but that's the way he would talk about it. He, he worked very hard. And I don't, you know, he loved his job in the sense. I mean, he had he had authority and he had he had he knew what he was doing, but it was very hard work. And he never talked about his his feelings, his life, his what things that mattered to him. But it was interesting. After my mom passed, we went up to visit him. I don't know where I was living then, but I wasn't New York, and we went to visit him, and he was playing opera CDs. Now, my father never – I never heard my father put on music anywhere. And all of a sudden, he's in his 80s, and he's got opera, CD, opera CDs playing. And I'm thinking, I wonder what other things in this guy's life I don't know about because we never discussed it. He never told me. Uh, he never shared his feelings because truthfully, I don't think he ever had – the thought that he could do anything but just go to work. That was his life. He had to help my, his his father died when he was when my dad was ten. So he grew up knowing that as a as a, a boy in the family he would have to get a job as soon as possible. He quit school. He went to work, and that's he, he just worked. And he never thought about what what's out there beyond that. Uh, you know, he, he'd go to the track. He'd go play cards. Uh, later on in life, he went to Florida a few times, and you know, he thought he found paradise going down there uh, because it was just he spent his life in a warehouse that had cement floors, and you know, it, it broke his body up and stuff. But uh, he never ta he never complained about it, and he never missed work. He just this is what that generation understood so all my stuff that i was dealing with was absolutely foreign to him he couldn't understand what i was talking about because he never he never thought he had those options it just would never you know it was never part of his thought process uh, 
your dad – I mean and my, I wish you and I share a couple of things here because my father would have said, look, a good day's work would kill you, so you better get a job in an office <laughs> because you don't know how to do anything. And – you know, and you're kind of lazy, and and you know, with, I I need somebody who can work. I had somebody asked me if I would work for my father. I said, no, I think I'd rather go to prison, because <laughs> he was, he was not he was not exactly a let's take the afternoon off kind of guy. He was, uh, if there was work, you you know, you were going to do it. So that generation and and your father's generation, which would have been a you know. Younger, younger than my dad, certainly, but still, they grew up with that idea. You know, you've got to work, and there may not be options. Uh, you can't just leave and go do something else. My father's generation was like, "You got a job, you don't let go of that job. You don't care what happens, because you may not get another one. And if you're going into life with no education, uh, whatever skills you got is that's it. That's that's what you're going to make money on." And uh, and they're not you know they're not lining up to hire you. So if you got a job, you shut up and work and uh, take care of the family. And that's what that was his thought process. But I always wondered when he played the music, what other things about this guy don't I know? What other dreams might have entered his mind just to be pushed away because he didn't have you know he didn't have an opportunity. It was really. Uh, really kind of interesting yeah and i appreciate you sharing that it's definitely uh tells you something about how life can be different if you don't feel or maybe if you just don't have you know the flexibility the options that many of us later yeah. later on do have you know yes. I, I was i was fortunate though thank god that my father wasn't a very militant kind of guy and he was more than polite about the situation. He wasn't even rude about it. He's just a matter of fact. Yeah. You can't fit in this yeah. life. I'm glad you're going to college because I don't have a plan for you then if you don't. Because <laughs> there's no way yeah. there's no way you're going to get your union card when you have zero skills on any of this stuff. I'm like, yeah, I know. I've been saying that for a while now. You know, because I think he, I think for a long time he was just hoping maybe this guy will pick up a screwdriver. I'm like, no, unless it has unless it has vodka and orange juice in it, there's no picking up a screwdriver for me. Okay. <laughs> And uh, and then he, he saw the jobs I was getting. Hey, Mark, you working in the library? I thought maybe you'd be apprentice with this other guy. He's a friend of mine. I'm like, I don't know anything about that crap. Laying down carpet? I I, I walk on the carpet. I'm not laying it down. Are you crazy? <laughs> you know. So that's I try to explain it to him. My father, you know, he, my father mentioned to me uh, maybe uh, becoming an iron worker. You work at, an iron worker in New York. You're up, up pretty high up. You think I'm going to walk on an iron beam carrying something? Are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> I know. God bless him. I mean, that's 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 the kind of thing yeah. he had. And yeah, but that you know, I, I still, I still felt from the the experience, and my mother laughed about it more than I did. But I still felt from the experience that he was a little exasperated. But the other the other point of it too is that he's still trying to be a father and still trying to be uh, looking sure. out and and in his own strange way, a, a loving manner of. You know, I just want to be able to go back to work and knowing that you're going to have a plan. Because, you know, I, I, my whole idea about having a plan on things, because I'm a planning nut, comes from my father. Uh, my father has always been about you need to have a plan about anything. You know what I mean? Even if you're going to the damn grocery store, what's your plan? 
You're not just going to walk around and spend money for nothing. If you have a plan, you can conserve money and keep on within budget. This is the kind of stuff he'd say. And as I grew up and had my own family, he was right on a lot of that stuff. And I, I kind of like took that in, regardless of if I didn't take his lifestyle. I certainly took a lot of his ideas because he was right in philosophy. Just was wrong in terms of, you know, the world outlook Very about good. what I wanted to do. But um, I was happy about that. And, uh, and um, I, we, we always laughed about that. Cause my, 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 oh, yeah. my mother told him for years, he's not going to work on the dock. He don't even like swimming. <laughs> 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 and, and, and literally, he came up to me later on. He goes, uh, yeah, uh, your mother said you joined the Air Force. He goes, is that because you don't like swimming? That's why you didn't join the Navy? <laughs> I'm like, no, Dad, I, I went to join the Air Force because they have an easier plan for me to be able to get a college education, unlike the other services. So, uh, And also because uh, if you score very high on the military test to get into the service, you could pick the Air Force. You don't have to go into the Army and, and do nothing but shoot people. And it's kind of hard to convert yeah. that when you go back home, you know? Yeah. So <laughs> I go, that's the reason why. I, 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 you know? Because they were, they were upset. In some ways, because I, I got a scholarship, but I turned it down. I was like, listen, I want to see the world as well as going to school. This allows me to do both. If I take this scholarship, what am I going to do this scholarship? This scholarship is just a tuition-based one, which means I still need to be able to have money to do everything. So now i got to work my butt off and then, and then go to a school on a local basis in an area I don't want to be at anymore. I don't want to be in New Jersey for another four years. In four years, I could see all kinds of things. Why would I want to stay here? I already saw all this stuff already. You know, so it's just sometimes difficult to explain that to folks that don't mind being there. You know, and I didn't I didn't hate being there. I'm happy from being from New Jersey. I mean, I don't live there anymore, and I don't want to live there anymore. But I didn't want to stay there anymore. There's there's a whole world to see. You If you read books, you look at things, you know, Who's to say I can't visit Paris and learn things or go to Germany or go to Japan and all the places that have been around the world? Well, you could do that if you want to do that, if that's one of your goals. Yeah, you could do that. And if I want to be a writer, and I did and still am, those experiences, they helped me along the way. And I knew I could do that all, still go to school and have the government pay for it all. Why not? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. We don't have to be rich, and I, I've been to 32 countries, and I got a four-year degree, oh my and I, I didn't spend a dime. Wow. I didn't spend a dime <laughs> other than to drink, wow. <laughs> you know? And believe me, if I could have figured out a way for the government to pay for my drinks, I would have did that, too. <laughs> I, I couldn't, unfortunately, but I tried, believe me. <laughs> Good. Yeah, I mean, that's, 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 that was my plan. You know, my father was right. You got to have some kind of a plan. You know, when I told him the plan, he's Very like, good. that's, he goes, that, is that even possible? I go, yeah, it's possible. This is a volunteer force. It's not like you're in a day where they literally grab you and throw you on a bus to go to the, go to Vietnam. <laughs> now you, you can actually yeah. volunteer and to get you to volunteer, uh, they give you a lot of stuff, you know, which I've been using the rest of my life. Healthcare. I bought two houses already with the VA loan bill, you know, um, so, so many things you could do and, uh, why not? Yes. You know, one other thing that I want to uh, uh, point out, and you just you kind of triggered it. Uh, I got my master's in social work. I was in my early 50s. 
I used to joke at school that I was older than all the students, most of the teachers, and most of the buildings. <laughs> I believe it. And truthfully, that's when life, in some ways, that's when life began for me. That job, I, getting that degree got me to the vet center and, and, and doing that job. Age has nothing to do with this conversation as far as I'm concerned. I don't care if you're 80 years old and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm old. So what? Do it anyway. You're going to be 80 regardless. Why don't you just do it? If there's something you want to do, and as long as it's physically, you're physically able to do it, don't let age be a barrier because that may, again, be just a way of avoidance. It, it normally, it normally I, is. It, it becomes a, just yes. another, another uh, excuse and a whole litany of excuses on why you shouldn't do yes. something. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're, 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 you're here. You're breathing. You're, you know, you're upright. Do now. You've got the chance. Do it while you got the chance. Even if it doesn't get you to wherever the the the, the, the finish line, you're still going to reap benefits of allowing yourself the opportunity to be you, whatever that means. Well, it's definitely, um, I, I feel the right course for more people to be happier, you know, if they admit certain things and then try to put together some kind of plan in, in that direction. You know, I, I don't know if, it's everybody is suited to do what my friend did by literally dropping the marriage, picking up the trumpet and hitting the yeah. road. Cause that's literally what he yeah. did. It almost sounds like a country song, but he really did that. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. and that worked for him. That's great. But Pretty maybe dramatic. other people can do that in a way where they've come to that admission and now they want to figure out how to keep it all, but maybe do it in a gradual way to work it into their life. That's, right. that's okay too. And there's yes. nothing wrong with that. That's right. That's exactly right. That's why I say it's take the step. Take the first step, whatever that is. Read a book, do the journaling, do, you know, take lessons in it, in whatever it is. Get involved in it, be a volunteer. Uh, it, it's something that gets you into the place that will allow you to be, to be you. Be that aspect of you that's been that's been repressed that that part of you comes out a little bit and don't you know you, uh, it, there is a million reasons not to do it i can give uh, we can do that we can do a whole whole show on why not to do it but <laughs> to be you to be the real person you are that is i think it's honoring yourself it's honoring if you believe in the supreme being it's honoring the supreme being that who, who put you here uh, and it's it's giving the world whatever unique talents you have in whatever area you're interested in you're making the world just a little better by that i i agree and i i think Many people accuse writers, particularly, of being a, a selfish lot. 
And maybe there's some truth to that, but I don't always think that that's necessarily a bad thing to, to look out for yourself, right. to try to find ways for yourself to be, to be happy. And if this is one of the ways to do so, to find some creative outlet that allows you to be happier than you were last week, let's say, or something, then I don't know why that selfishness is supposed to be bad. I'm all for duty, honor, and sacrifice. I'm a veteran just like you are. I'm all for that. I understand that. But it doesn't mean that I'm supposed to be miserable all the time because I'm a husband or because I'm a father or because I have yeah. a mortgage, you know, or because yeah. or because my, my kids are driving me nuts today or something. You know, I, I'm supposed yeah. to always be miserable. Who, who says this? Yeah. There's no Hallmark right. card That's... that says that. So, you know, here's, yes. here's the Hallmark card. You must be miserable. Yay. No, no, of course <laughs> not. So uh, we should be. I, I, I know someone said, well, uh, America's going wrong because people are too selfish. I mean, I got a different viewpoint on that. I think in many ways our country is going wrong because we don't care enough about ourselves, let alone our neighbors. And I think once we start caring more about ourselves, we might actually care more about our neighbors. That's right. If if you accept the fact that most people are in jobs they don't like, they're in lives that may not be really reflecting their interests it stands to reason why we're unhappy. Yeah, and I think there's a lot and to do with that. And why that unhappiness manifests itself into so many negative things that happen in our world. Uh, this is part of the self-actualization is part of the normal process of life. And these are, these are things we should strive for. And loving yourself is not uh, a negative that's a positive thing. It's caring about yourself. Honoring yourself is not uh, – it's not selfish. Uh, and I understand that, the, the, you know, the people say, well, if I do this, I can't do – I can't do these other things for the kids and stuff. They'll be fine. They – what your kids want, they want to know that they can trust you. They want to know that you'll be there for them. They want to know you love them and that you care and you're interested in them. They didn't ask you to give up your life. And you're teaching them a very valuable lesson about honoring their own skills and goals. You know, you're not looking at your kid and saying, well, you've got to become a lawyer because I want to look good to say I have my son. My son's a lawyer. Just we, we, I want to honor myself and I want you as my child to honor himself and to find the things that matter to him. It's a wonderful, wonderful lesson to teach your children. It is. Uh, help find them, what you like doing yeah, and do it. Yeah, help them find what they want to, you know, if you can help. I mean, sometimes they got to do a lot of that legwork too, and that's fine. Yes. But you want to at right. least be supportive, and, and I agree with you, and that's why I don't have any – stereotypic objective for them other than, you know, I'd like them to go to college if it really feels that that's right. necessary for them to do so. And if they don't, just like my father says, okay, okay, what's the plan? What's the plan? There <laughs> you go. A, and it, 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 it sounds weird, but I, I always found that what he had said, those words always made the most, the most sense to me. And I've always lived by those few things that he did say to me that made sense. Because, you know, he said a lot of stuff that didn't make sense to me, and I'm like, 
All right, that's that sounds like a union meeting from last night after three beers. But what's the plan? That always made sense to me because he's right. I mean, half of excess is really about some kind of preparation. So yeah, you you got to have some kind of a plan, even if it's a bad plan. It's better than no plan, right? You know. Well, Bruno, I really appreciate it. I mean, I, I obviously a, a show like this is important to other writers, but I, and I've said this before, and I don't know how much folks have taken that part of it seriously. That the the show, even though it talks about writing and, and about the arts, you know, it's still a show about humanity, and it's still a show about being human and having to be the strength to be human. That's why we call it that show, because right. my philosophy a, yeah. has always been that people a torn in life for centuries now that it's like they're not allowed to be human. You got a, you got a science that says it's not good enough to be human. You have to be superhuman. And you, and you got religions yes. that oftentimes saying human is weak. You need to be supernatural. So you got these two forces wanting to be something other than, well, I can be the plumber, you know, who likes theater. I mean, yes. I can't be the writer that, right. that wants to go to the ballet. I can't be the, the gay guy that wants to play football, I mean, it makes no sense because when you get stuck with these stereotypical parameters, they restrict your freedom. And oftentimes that means that they restrict your choices. You know, it's like you're stuck in the brave new world. You know, you, you can't be the plumber because you were born to be the engineer. And that's all you can ever be because someone pre-programmed you to do that from the moment you were in, in, conceived. Yeah. So we don't want to have that kind of world. And I think sometimes, even though we don't have that country, thank God, we have we still have a social attitude that, you know, that says that um, success is, is measured by how big of a house you are or, you know, how many yeah, children right. you have or, you know, it, it, it don't matter if you're unhappy, which is incredible. Uh, people will say, you know, I'm really proud that my both of my sons are lawyers and it doesn't really matter that they're deeply unhappy and they're on their second and third wife. And they're in debt up to the ears, but they're lawyers, okay? And that's great. I, I don't know what the hell is so great about that. Yeah. That's, you know, that's because the parents' self-esteem is so low, they need to be propped up by their kids. So they're sacrificing their children to make them look good. Yeah, there's some truth to that. go to yeah, there's some truth to that. So I look good. I'm just so fortunate that I had really normal middle-class parents, one union shop steward and one nurse. And they weren't trying to be anybody but that, and they were happy with that. Yes. So as long as long as I had a plan, that's all they care about. You know, sometimes I I would get a little little cruel and cynical with my father. I'm like, you just care that I'm out of the house and I'm not broke and you have to give me money. Other than that, you know, he's like, no. He'd laugh and say, no. I I if I can't give you the union card, you need to have a damn plan to go do something with your life. That's that's what my job is as your father. Make sure you're going to go do something that's going to be worthwhile. So and, that, and, that, and he was right about that, and uh, I feel the same way with my kids as well. But uh, yeah, there's a lot that you can learn from the creative arts, whether it's writing or sculpting or whatever, that can help. I I feel a lot of people become more who they're supposed to be, and, and maybe gay, gather that self-esteem that they've lost. I mean, I've known people that they entered marriages and they said that they became lost because. That's not really what they wanted to do. It's just what was expected of them, you know. And yeah. I think that's the problem is many times people 
wind up being unhappy later in their life because they're following all these other people's expectations. I'm like, well, what the hell happened to yours? He goes, I don't know. I don't even know where they are anymore. So that yeah, that's a sad that's thing. Tragic. You meet a lot of people that that's way. That's tragic. Yeah, that's, there's a lot of people that, that way. That is tragic. But yeah. I, I think that there's also in that some some time, some chance that people can turn it around. I think the, the worst thing you can hear from somebody when they've identified that this has happened to them is that they say, well, uh, I, I think it's too late. You know, and my, my, my feeling has always been that it's it's not too late. You just need to That's grab the, the reins here and stop this friggin' runaway training and go somewhere else. Do something different, even if it's in a small baby step way. But no, it's not it's not too late. But it's it's it is going to be too late if that's always going to be your refrain whenever someone challenges you or whenever even you challenge yourself when no one's looking or no one's listening. You know, as long as you think that there is, you're you're going to be stuck in that prison. You know, and you're going to be stuck in the prison and you're going to be mad because you're going to say the warden's a big jerk. And then when you look in the mirror, you realize you're the warden. So, yeah. (laughs) Very good. That's absolutely right. All right, Bruno, I definitely appreciate you being on the show. Uh, Bruno Resignia, uh, a fellow uh, fellow Italian folk there, a, a, a New Yorker. I'm from New Jersey, so, you know, we're, we're in that competitive race uh, in America over here because, you know, we're not supposed to get along according to cultural history over here. We're supposed to hate each other and curse each other. But as you can see, that's another silly concept that's not always true. That's I've had a few things. I thank where it you was. very much for inviting me on. <laughs> yeah, and thank you for really sharing all of that. I think people are going to get a lot out of the show, and, and they're going to feel like I feel that uh, even when we don't mean to, you're going to you're going to I think go into other areas of people's lives with with a show like this, and they can get something more from it. They don't have to be a writer or want to be a writer to understand that uh, maybe there's something I can get out of this that's positive and and useful that I can you know, correct my own ways or, or, or possibly, you know, gain some faith I didn't have before. Because I really think people are in need of that more than ever in, in our country. Good. All right, folks, until next time, this is probably, I think it is actually, uh, the last show of 2022, 20, uh, which is great. It's a wonderful way to end the show with, with Bruno and, and, and his wonderful take on things and, and some of the stories he's told. You're just not going to hear that anywhere else. And that's another reason why I'm always happy about this show is it really brings out stuff you're just not going to hear otherwise. And it's an excellent way to end the show. Uh, starting next month, uh, which is literally next week, uh, it'll be year number five for this show. So we continue on. And don't forget, folks, I, may, I made fun of this in the past, and I still do. But remember, I was on the network that literally told me, uh, Mr. Rossi, we don't really know if you could do a show like this because of the way you sound. So apparently, if you sound like you're like, I don't know, a nephew in The Sopranos, you can't do a show about intellectual art or anything because, you know, I'm supposed to be a boxer or I'm supposed to be a mob guy or something. I can't be actually interested in books in the world. God forbid. But uh, they, uh, going into five years there, they're very happy. I'm happy the audience continues to, to grow. So, again, another another silly stereotype down the drain. So I'll let other people dictate you. I gave them eight shows in the can, and I said, Put them out there and see what happens, okay? What's the worst thing going to happen? You think you don't like it, then you can pull it. What can I say? I can't do anything about that. But I can't change the way I sound. I'm not going to change the way I sound. And I certainly don't expect that your definition is true. You know? I mean, Bruno would tell you, we're from people that 
uh, literally created art in in, in science. <laughs> that that's who we are. That's right. uh, the, the, the most of these things on this planet came from Italian people who invented it. So what, regardless of Hollywood has us in a corner where you know we're saying Adrian all day or, or shooting people. Well, guess what? We we've done more before and we'll do more afterwards. So don't let anybody put you in some corner or some box like that. You know, and and uh, just like I'm telling you now. I've never had a show about boxing or the mob on this show. Because guess what? I'm not interested in either one of those subjects. All right? So Good for it you. just tells you that there's some silly stuff over there. <laughs> you know? All right, yeah. folks. God bless. God bless you, Bruno. Hopefully we can have you again in the future, especially if you have another project maybe or something like that you want to promote. Or maybe you just want to stop Thank by you. and share something. You're definitely welcome to do so. All right, folks. Thank until so Until much. next time and next year, God bless and take care. Thank you for all your support. Strength to be human. Mark Anthony Rossi, Bruno Resigna. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.